On the Table, Current and Critical Information for Massage Therapists in Practice, a podcast presented by Massage Therapy Canada. Hello and welcome back to On the Table. Our subject today, who has the power in the massage therapy treatment room? In part two of our interview with Pam Fitch, we explore ethical dilemmas and what makes them complicated. Specifically, we discuss issues related to power. Although massage therapists hold positions of responsibility, they may not feel particularly powerful and able to manage the therapeutic relationship. When that happens, they discover the cost of being nice instead of professionally responsible, and this often results in challenging ethical dilemmas. At the same time, when therapists exploit their positions of responsibility and power, clients are at risk. I'd like to welcome back my co-host, Don Dillon. Don is a massage therapist, author of Charting Skills for Massage Therapists, and the soon-to-be-released On Practice, From Entry Level to Established Massage Therapist. Welcome, Don. Thank you, Janin. Always a pleasure to be with you, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Our uh, guest today, of course, we've had her on already on the show, and we're back for part two, so let me just introduce her for our listeners. Canadian massage therapy educator, writer, researcher, and longtime practitioner Pam Fitch has explored professional challenges faced by manual therapists for more than 30 years. Although her writing has often focused on issues related to trauma, she has recently become interested in the power dynamics associated with manual therapy. Pam, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So Pam, to kick things off here, um, you maintain that practitioners compromise their integrity when they aim to please or appear nice to their clients. This leaves the practitioner open to game playing by manipulative clients. Can you please explain what you mean when you talk about power in the treatment room? Well, sure. I think that there is uh, no question that massage therapists come into this profession because they want to help people. That's almost invariably what I hear when I ask my students that as they first join the program and, and start thinking about becoming part of the, the profession. Um, the other piece of this is that 75% of massage therapists are women. And when you think about it, it's not uh, rocket science to know that women are tend to be socialized to be nurturing, to be kind, to be helping. And in fact, when they are not these things, they're often criticized. So for women in particular, but also for male therapists, when we are nice, it makes it challenging at times to stand up for ourselves and uh, refuse when people are bullying us or, you know, behaving badly. We don't, we don't want to think badly of people, and quite often what I hear from massage therapists is that they question themselves. Did, we, did I make this happen? Did, am I to blame? Rather than saying, here are my standards, this is my boundary, this is what I have to do. So boundaries are so essential to what we do, and yet we get caught because our own personal attitudes towards power and our need to be nice conflict with sometimes the responsibility that we need to do, which is to make it clear what we can and cannot do and set our boundaries. Pam, in your book, Talking Body, Listening Hands, you write, and I quote, 
Ethical dilemmas challenge a commonly understood code of conduct. Ethical dilemmas also harbor conflicting and hidden values, beliefs, and charged emotions. Can you tell us why are ethical dilemmas complicated? Well, ethical dilemmas are always complicated because they're all about what's unacknowledged. Usually there's an issue that arises, and if ethical dilemmas were not complicated, the answer would be clear immediately. This is what we should do for this problem or that problem. But what is complicating things is the unacknowledged, the unspoken aspects of whatever the ethical dilemma is. And usually that relates to values and beliefs that people have, um, their attitudes towards whatever the issue is. And when those things are not obvious, and when they're hidden, it makes it difficult for us to uh, be clear about what what a particular issue is. So ethical dilemmas can be challenging, especially if they involve issues relating to power, because how we feel about power is pretty personal. It, it's hard to to be clear when we're feeling confused about how our, how we feel about power. So relating back to our theme, are power issues always at play in ethical dilemmas? I I think so. Um, you know. That's my impression. That's my opinion. There's always power in the treatment room. And the, and the interesting thing is that as regulated health professionals, we have a lot of authority. That's, that's inherent in our role as health professionals. We have regulation. We have legislation. We have standards of practice. We have a scope of practice. We have all kinds of um, determinations about what we can and cannot do. That gives us a, authority as health professionals. But what complicates things is that not all of us feel particularly powerful as massage therapists. And if we are being the nice therapists, we may be uncomfortable representing that role and those professional obligations. That's when things get really challenging. Pam, how do practitioners contribute to conflict in the therapeutic relationship through their own behaviors? There are a couple that are really, a couple of issues that are really problematic. One of the biggest problems that people do is they make an assumption. They make an assumption about the intention of the client. What did the client really mean? And then they get focused on the drama of whatever's happening and they forget what their professional role is. In addition to that, they may deny their professional obligations and responsibilities and that complicates things because now they're thinking more about the client, what the client's intention is. Maybe they're making assumptions. Maybe they're ignoring their own personal distress. And all of these things just snowball into a major issue that now becomes hard to solve. Now it's an ethical dilemma because they're not quite sure what's unacknowledged, what's secret, what's not known. They're, they're maybe even judging a client because they're afraid. There's all kinds of things that uh, practitioners do that can really contribute to conflict. It often comes back to how confident does the practitioner feel in their role holding the space as a regulated health professional. 
When is it important to offer an apology to the client? Well, apology has a lot of power in it. When something occurs and a therapist doesn't know what to do in order to solve a problem, really offering an apology and simply saying, I can't do this thing that you've asked or I'm sorry, this is my scope of practice and I'm not able to provide the care that you're asking for. It usually disarms people. So apology has a really powerful role in ensuring that practitioners can work within the confines that they're, that they're most comfortable. Those regulations and legislation and, and authority and responsibility. So apology is a great way to just disarm a client who's being insistent or being difficult. Power becomes an issue when a client is pushing and therapists don't know quite what to say. Well, apologies are a great way to just simply disarm and stop the conversation. Are there rules or best ways to apologize? I mean, is a simple sorry okay enough? most parents would tell you that they've had lots of little uh, toddlers say sorry because they've been prompted to do so. And we all would acknowledge that just simply saying sorry is not quite enough. Um, But usually if you want to apologize thoroughly, you're going to express your regret. I'm so sorry. And then you're going to talk about the behavior. That's a problem. I'm so sorry that you did this thing or I did this thing that caused the problem. So now you're acknowledging the behavior and then you're going to make a comment about what you can do to uh, rectify the situation. So uh, apologies sort of come in threes. I'm so sorry that I can't provide the care that you've asked for because it's not part of my scope of practice. Uh, I'm really sorry I can't help you, but I would like to refer you to somebody that can help you. That's a, that's an example of how a simple apology can deflect a client's request for something that's not part of their sco- the, the therapist's scope, and it's the right thing to do professionally. So apology has a lot of power in how we manage treatment room dynamics. So Pam, let's, uh, let's take a different perspective and talk about when clients challenge our professional boundaries. Do you have any advice for our listeners? Well, I imagine there's there's not a therapist in practice who doesn't have a story that uh, makes them shudder when they think about how clients have asked them to do things that make them uncomfortable or uh, they're out of their scope or they're actually unethical or, in fact, clients may even try to make therapists feel uncomfortable. The, the most common way that clients challenge boundaries is usually because they're assuming a special status. They have expectations of a therapist in the same ways that they might of a friend. They'll ask for favors or test the, the loyalty of a therapist. So how this often shows up is clients will ask a therapist to do things like provide a receipt in the name of their spouse because their own insurance extended health benefits have run out. That's very common, and we have a role to educate the client about that. Then there are other clients who may play power games, and the reason they come in for the treatment is more about 
the pleasure they take in manipulating somebody and trying to reverse the power differential than it is um, actually a therapeutic reason for attending. Mm. And then, of course, the worst situation is when uh, clients seek sexual favors, and that becomes a real problem with certain therapists uh, who are just uh, at a loss as to how they can react to that. They're just really distressed. So considering that clients may push our professional boundaries, some may even present as aggressive, how can practitioners Mm -hmm. assess in advance for safety and risk? Well, I think our our job, it comes back to that uh, professional role. Our job is we're not friends with our clients, but part of what we need to do is observe carefully the behaviors that we see and if we see if we observe that a client's in trouble we respond accordingly but if we observe that a client is behaving inappropriately in ways that that may harm us or may put our uh, professional role at risk then our job is to take those behaviors very seriously for example if a client is becoming aggressive or they're accusing a therapist of not providing what they need and they and they become quite aggressive then our job is to use active listening skills to de-escalate that conversation to take it down take it down until they can figure out what is the problem and solve the problem in some cases clients will actually try to intimidate or guilt therapists um, the therapist will observe the behaviors where the 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 client is is trying to make the therapist feel guilty, trying to make them uh, feel ashamed of their responses. In those cases, if therapists can be really clear what is their role and maintain an eye for their own safety, uh, they can reflect back to the client exactly what they have to do. Now, this takes confidence, and it takes a lot of uh personal strength. So this is, again, where the power in the treatment room may may undermine a therapist's capacity to respond appropriately. But this is what we need to do. So this is our professional role. Sometimes uh, clients will actually tease or flirt. Um, and it's straightforward that if the, if the therapist is encountering clients who are teasing or flirting, they need to refuse to engage. They need to use plain language and and not tease back or not laugh in the face of sexualized conversation. So Pam, let's talk about the common responses to conflict. So you describe the common responses to conflict as passivity, passive aggression, and aggression, and that these responses may reflect a person's early life experiences with conflict. Can you give us an example of these three things, passivity, passive aggression, and aggression, as they may appear in the therapeutic relationship? Well, for sure. Therapists who have not a lot of comfort challenging or standing up for themselves quite often will respond passively to bad behavior when they see it. And what I mean by that is either they make no response or they simply accept what's going on and they just don't challenge it. Well, that's not entirely a problem if you think I'm never going to see this client again. They're only here for the one time. I'm just going to, you know, hold my nose and get through this treatment and that's fine. 
But if there's a chance that they're going to see the person again, or if there's a chance that the behavior is going to escalate, they actually probably need to speak up. So a passive person is not going to be able to respond appropriately, uh, or they're going to have a hard time finding the words to set a different kind of communication climate in the treatment room. Passive-aggressive behavior is a kind of thing that we see with predatory clients, uh, clients who are just there to kind of uh, play power games and reverse power differentials. It's not impossible for a massage therapists to also be passive-aggressive, but in this case, in the context of this conversation, I'm, I'm focusing my comments on problematic clients. So these folks are, are people who are toying with the emotions of others and often using secrets to control or manipulate. So they'll pretend to be positive when in fact their, their uh, pretense is hiding a lot of anger and frustration. So those are, are difficult people to speak with because if you challenge what they're saying, they may simply deny pretend it didn't happen, tell you that you've made it all up or you're, you're, you must be embarrassing yourself because you have such a vivid imagination. These are passive-aggressive kind of responses. And then if you have somebody who is aggressive, usually in the treatment room, a client who's aggressive is, is, is very focused on engaging in a sexual assault. This is a predatory individual. They're not there for a therapeutic reason. It's extremely rare to hear stories of this kind of aggression, particularly from clients, because uh, generally clients in a massage therapy environment are in a vulnerable position by getting on the table and taking their clothes off. So I think aggression is probably rare. But in certain circumstances, when therapists work in their own homes, in isolated circumstances, they need to be pretty aware and uh, fairly defensive of their own safety, make sure that they're not at risk. So Pam, again, speaking about power, um, when should therapists assert their position? It's really important for therapists to get in the habit of stating their boundaries clearly. The more frequently we say, I can do this, but I can't do that, it rolls off our tongues more easily. Uh, for instance, in my school, I, pr I get my students to practice these kinds of statements frequently because I don't want them to be uh, stove up so they can't make any sound or I, I want the words to come out of their mouth. It's really, really important for us to assert. And, and what I mean is assertion is the statement where you're, you're saying, here's the line, I can't go beyond this line. It's part of my scope of practice that I must do this assessment. Or I cannot provide that kind of care for you. That's not part of my scope. And if we practice those statements over and over again, we become a lot more comfortable in establishing our boundaries. That assertion is, is as powerful as apology in terms of managing the communication climate in the treatment room. So if we were going to talk about how a therapist um, makes an assertion, what would that look like? It's, it's always using plain language. It's respectful. 
it's clear, not difficult language, no technical language. It's simply, I cannot do what you're asking me to say. Yeah, you may even have to make a command. This treatment is over. Please get dressed. Uh, we're not continuing this treatment. It's, it's a, a plain language that makes a statement about what's true in the moment. And the therapist can't be rocked. They can't be pushed out of their position. Assertions are, are so simple when you think about it. Fairly difficult to carry out at times for a number of us, but so straightforward that when you get comfortable in asserting, you stop apologizing for what you need. And this is a skill that not only massage therapists need, but obviously women who are feeling nice and have difficulty challenging bullying and bad behavior, we all need this. Everybody who needs to stand up to bullies needs to be able to assert their power. Pam, you mentioned in one of your responses about predatory behavior. What would you like massage therapists to know about predatory behavior? Well, thanks for asking this question, Don, because when I was in the massage school many years ago, we would make jokes about clients who would want to have a happy ending. In other words, they wanted to masturbate to climax or something like that. Uh, we didn't have a lot of conversation about clients who were trying to manipulate and play power games with therapists. But since I became an educator in massage therapy, I've seen this situation and act repeatedly uh, for vulnerable therapists, student therapists in particular. When you have a predator who's coming into a student clinic or in, into a massage clinic and they perceive that their massage therapist is vulnerable to their skill, then the predator is going to engage in very common behaviors which are seen in child abuse cases, sex abuse. Uh, predatory behavior is sort of uh, across the board uh, common. So there are, uh, I have six things that I think of. The first is the predator is going to engage in trying to create a private relationship. So in a, in a student environment, the therapist is going to speak about something which is a secret and then ask the therapist not to tell anybody. So that's the first way that the secrecy begins. And in some cases, the client may ask the therapist to go to a, uh, to their home to treat them or something like that. Uh, they're going to test the boundaries like with jokes and stories and sexualized language and see how the therapist reacts. This is how predators groom and at each stage of the grooming, which may not be in a particular order, but at each stage, they're checking to see whether the therapist is passive and accepting or whether they're going to be caught or rejected. So if the secrecy isn't challenged and the boundary testing is not challenged, then the predator may begin telling explicit stories or asking explicit questions, telling the therapist about their own sex behaviors and preferences and stories from their uh, exploits with women. Again, if the therapist doesn't 
stop the stories, if they don't, if they allow those stories to continue, then the predator is going to start intimidating and saying things like, well, you told me I could tell you these things. Um, it's all your fault that I'm feeling the need to tell you these secrets. The last two things that happen, if all of those other things are not challenged by passive therapists, then the client may expose their genitals. And this is a big test. If the therapist doesn't refuse or doesn't tell the client to remain covered, then they may reach out and actually touch the therapist. And, and, and that set of six predatory behaviors, those grooming behaviors, represent an escalation that will result in sexual assault. And massage therapists need to know this so that they can document what they're seeing. They're not needing to document in ways that um, they might put in their own diary. I felt uncomfortable. I felt creepy. They're actually describing the behaviors as they see them because predatory behavior, grooming behavior, escalation, and sexual assault is criminal and if it were to happen that somebody were to become part of a court uh, case their notes could be subpoenaed and those, that documentation could be uh, could become part of a case building a case so predatory behavior it happens in massage therapy way more commonly than perhaps our whole profession has ever acknowledged but once you get clear on how to assert how to how to stop um, boundary violations, then all of this goes away. And if I can say, power lies in our professional obligations and our authority and role. And when we're uncomfortable uh, wearing that power and that authority, we need to get some help in doing so because that's our protection as therapists. That's how we're going to be safe. Well, thank you, Pam. I, I think this is a, a subject that we haven't been adequately prepared for in general, and you've provided a real framework for us to be able to learn how to recognize and deal with predatory behavior. Now, let's uh, switch tracks again and back to the clients and talk about what should clients do if they witness a practitioner exerting their power inappropriately? Well, it's a really good question because obviously we are not immune. Every profession, 5%, according to the statistics, of every profession, especially professions where there is a power differential, and there is in our profession, about 5% of every uh, profession has people who are behaving like predators and like they are manipulating. So if a therapist is behaving in this predatory way and a client experiences this, they have um, a right to make a complaint, and in regulated provinces, they would complain to the regulatory body. In unregulated environments, they could contact the police, um, recognizing that the burden of proof in a criminal case is much, much higher than in the regulatory case. It may be more straightforward to contact a regulatory body. But for provinces that are not regulated, there is always the police. Because if at a certain point you feel like you've encountered sexual assault, you need to speak up. It's very, very hard, though, to do so. And people may need support. They may need to speak to um, 
other therapists to verify whether what they heard or what they experienced was wrong to begin to get comfortable with that. But ultimately, speaking up and laying complaints is what's going to protect the client. So Pam, there are many uh, different conflicts and experiences and um, ethical dilemmas that practitioners will um, find themselves in. When they find themselves in these conflicts, what, sh- what should they do? What's their first kind of plan of action? I think there's two, there's two things. First of all, you need to really reflect on what it is that is causing them to feel uncomfortable. Because it may be true that what's causing them to feel uncomfortable has more to do with their own attitudes towards power or those internalized issues of social, cultural, gender, family history, that kind of thing. So they need to think about that. Is it, is this issue about me or is this issue about something that has occurred in the treatment room that I need to address? And if it is the second, then we've got to review what actually happened? We've got to think very carefully about um, all the steps that created the conflict and acknowledge how we felt emotionally. I always find that if people can make a sentence, one sentence to describe whatever the ethical conflict is or the, the dilemma, then they're usually getting a lot more clear about what the problem is. But in addition to that, quite often what we need is to talk to a peer, somebody with more uh, resources, someone with more experience who can advise us. Um, in our profession, we don't have a, a tradition of peer supervision. But in psychotherapy, it is the norm that all psychotherapists have to undergo uh, supervision when they're seeing clients. Well, in effect, when you're having these kinds of uh, challenges that we've I've just talked about here, when clients challenge boundaries or when therapists encounter uh, ethical dilemmas, these are the kind of things that if they were to happen to a psychotherapist, they would bring to their supervisor. So I strongly urge people to consider talking to a peer supervisor. Now, this would be somebody who's got a lot of experience in the profession, some number of years, has seen lots of different uh, circumstances. It may be a psychotherapist. It may be a counselor. Um, But somebody who can help you talk through what's actually happened. The other thing that is absolutely critical is to document incidents when they happen. And by that, I don't mean write a diary of how you felt. I mean, if something has happened in a treatment room, you actually document exactly what happened. If you had to assert your boundary, you should probably be documenting that in the client record. Client asked me to provide a receipt in her husband's name. I refused. You need to get that stuff down because we have a medical legal responsibility as part of our authority as as health professionals to maintain that documentation. And all of those things, reviewing, recognizing the emotional response, checking in with peers, reflecting, documenting, all of these things will help a therapist get a lot more clear about what their actions may be. They may not be comfortable with what they think they have to do, but it's 
as you get more clear, you can start to acknowledge what the components of the, of the conflict actually are. And it's quite heartening for therapists. There's no shame in not knowing what to do. It's actually a strength if you can acknowledge that you don't know what to do in a circumstance. But asking for help, that's huge. That's really powerful. So asking for help is helpful, of course, and powerful, as you stated. Lastly, is there a system or framework for professional decision-making that practitioners can utilize? There is no framework um, that is organized and published necessarily by our colleges, but it's, it's basically what I was describing. It's reviewing what's going on, uh, documenting the entire episode, acknowledging the emotional response, and checking in with peers so you can determine what the best action is to take. Pam, lastly, um, is there anything else you wanted to add regarding um, power in the treatment room as we bring this podcast episode to a close? I really hope that massage therapists actually reflect on their own power and own their own power. I think probably if we get ourselves in trouble, it's usually because we're not accepting our professional role. We're caught by our old life history uh, and attitudes towards power. Because the fact is, as massage therapists, we are in a hugely powerful position to establish what's appropriate in any circumstance. And when clients play with us, it's because they perceive that they can so our job is to stop those games. In the same way, if we hear about massage therapist who's actually behaving inappropriately with clients, our role is to, again, embrace our professional role, our power, and speak up and make, make a report about somebody. That's how we're going to be keep all of our clients and ourselves safe, is if we keep clear about what our role is and we don't accept bad behavior and bullying. Well, thank you once again, Pam, for joining us um, with this enlightening discussion today. And thank you, John, for being once again my wonderful co-host. Always a pleasure, Janin. I just want to thank you so much for having me, and it was a great conversation. So don't forget to check the resources uh, on our podcast webpage. As well, we are proud to announce um, the RMT Business and Ethics Forum taking place June 20th, 2020. RMT's marker calendars. If you are in the Kitchener, Ontario area, we're delighted to have Pam Fitch speak as one of our keynotes this year. Thanks everyone for listening and we will be back with another episode next month. On the Table current and critical information for massage therapists in practice, a podcast presented by Massage Therapy Canada.